0: Also this morning, the COVID pandemic appears to be entering a new phase with the CDC's announcement of sweeping updates to its guidelines.
1: Last week, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released yet another update about how we should or shouldn't protect ourselves from COVID-19. Gone were quarantines for people who'd been exposed to the virus, social distancing requirements and surveillance testing. Vaccines were still heavily emphasized, and the agency pointed out that we have a lot more tools to fight COVID now than we used to. But the new guidelines mark a tonal shift. I asked Tim Rickwarth, who writes about COVID for Slate, to break them down for me.
0: The basic gist of them is it's no longer, hey, you know, keep your distance, try to do this, do this, etc. It's okay, you know, the people who need to, figure out how to protect yourselves. Everybody else, just go on with your life.
1: It's part of a change from a more collective approach to weathering the pandemic to an individual one. Breather beware. But what I couldn't tell and what I wanted to ask Tim was whether the CDC was meeting a lot of exhausted Americans where they are or just throwing up its hands. There's this joke that I saw circulating on Twitter uh, from the comedian Ashley Nicole Black, and I actually wanted to read it to you, which is a terrible thing to do to a joke, but I'm going to do it anyway. And she said, right now, the CDC sounds like when we would really get on our mom's nerves. And then she'd be like, you know what? Do whatever you want then. And for like a second, you think you won, but you really did not. And I have to, I actually laughed out loud when I saw this. Do you, is that a fair assessment?
0: You know, it, it kind of is. I think that there, you know, people have pointed it out that there's this potential for a nasty positive feedback cycle, um, so to speak, or just a nasty feedback cycle where the CDC just continues to meet people where they are and people just continue to do less and less. And so the CDC continues to recommend less and less and then people do less and less and then they recommend less and less and pretty soon we're all doing nothing. So I think that there's definitely something to that. And that's what a lot of people argue or upset about the CDC is that they're not setting a high bar, right? They're not setting what we should be doing, what's the ideal. They are, you know, meeting people where they are, so to speak, or where they think people are.
1: At the same time, the CDC's head just admitted that they made some, quote, pretty public mistakes handling the pandemic and called for a major reorganization. So today on the show, with Tim as our guide, we're gonna take a deep look at the agency that's become a political punching bag, because maybe we've been expecting the wrong things from them all along. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. The CDC's mission is to protect the public by tracking and preventing disease. And Tim says if you go back to the agency's origins, you can learn a lot about how it operates today.
0: The original CDC was charged with a very specific task. And this was right after World War II, so something like like 1945 or 46. They said, hey, there's a lot of malaria in the South, and it's messing with our military bases, and you need to get rid of it. And so let's, you know, let's create this little office and you go out and figure out what to do with the mosquitoes and the people and the this and do some research, just like figure out what to do and solve malaria. We don't want to deal with it anymore. So they did a pretty good job and they started to expand to other infectious diseases and how to prevent them, how to monitor them. I and mean, monitoring is a big thing. Just knowing that they're around is a big thing. It's not small. So a lot of the, that's what a lot of the CDC does. And, but over the years, as the agency grew... Right, and that's by the way, is why it's in Atlanta. Right, so I I think that you know many agencies that are you know as large, at least now as the CDC is, would would be in Washington, Um, and it's in Atlanta because that's where it started. Because that's
1: that's where the malaria was. That's where
0: the malaria was at the time. Right, Uh, they expanded to uh, other infectious diseases, but then they even. Sort of expanded beyond that to a broader vision of public health. So they're looking at chronic diseases. They might be looking at the social determinants of health. So there's a much broader number of things that the CDC does. And they issue communications. They issue guidelines. They train people all around the world. Um, they investigate outbreaks. Outbreaks. I mean, it, there's 11,000 people or something that work there. So like, it's not a small agency. They they do a lot of stuff.
1: Going into the pandemic, how would you think about their reputation? I I grew up thinking of the CDC as kind of unmatched in public health.
0: They were unmatched, so much so that other countries, would their own public health agencies were called the CDC of France, Hmm. the CDC of, you know, Nigeria or whatever it is. So the CDC's reputation was awesome. I mean, when I was a kid, the CDC was in movies, right? They were like germ-fighting crime solvers. Like, they were awesome. Uh, And the polls before the pandemic, the polls bore that out. So the CDC's level of trust was very high relative to other government agencies. Um, And something in the 80s, maybe 80s percent, I don't know if it went up to the 90s, but anyway, now it's like down to below 50 approval, Hmm. right? So it's almost, it's halved.
1: In the early days of the pandemic, the relationship between the Trump administration and the CDC was tumultuous, to say the least. The White House downplayed the threat of the virus, blocked CDC media briefings, and quashed the normal agency process. CDC guidance was even edited by White House political advisors. So there was a hope among Democrats, but also public health experts, that the Biden administration would mark a kind of reset for the CDC. For the moment I was elected, I said I'd always give it to you straight from the shoulder. And we need some straight talk right now. Because there's a lot of fear and misinformation in the country, and we need to cut through it with facts, with science, with the truth. When the Biden administration took office, there were a lot of declarations that they would, quote-unquote, follow the science, that they would avoid the kind of outright politicization that we saw under the Trump administration. That sounds like a, a simple and laudable goal. Did that happen?
0: Well the short answer is no and I think it needs a little bit of elaboration. Yeah. So I don't want to engage in a um both sidesism or like a false equivalency between the Trump and the Biden administration. They both have had their flaws. So let's let's take a look at it, right? So the Trump administration it's fairly obvious that they mishandled the pandemic and were not transparent about it. We're lying about things. We're pressuring scientists. We're doing all kinds of stuff that I, a very heavy hand um, in uh, politically influencing um, scientists and the pandemic response. So I think that that is, is very clear. And when Biden was elected, there was this hope that there could be, you know, this sort of idealistic, ah, now we are going to go back to these neutral scientists and the neutral science, and this is what we're going to do. So the Biden administration, uh, while not doing some of the most overt moves of the Trump administration, has its own sleight of hands. And so they have shown a willingness to kind of suppress or gloss over data when it, uh, you know, um, suggests a politically inconvenient outcome. Uh, they're, they have not always been straightforward either there haven't there's more briefings under Trump actually than under Biden so you know maybe those briefings under Trump weren't the most um informative all of the time but there was some there was in, in, in some baseline level more communication part of the mishandling in the early years with the Trump uh, with the Trump administration leaves the Biden administration with a more difficult problem to solve right so it, again they're not like equivalent but neither of them are uh, innocent.
1: How would you describe the, the Biden administration's sleight of hand?
0: Okay, so let's take an example. Um, the uh, vaccine rollout. So the vaccines are awesome. I'm so glad that they're here. Um, they've saved a lot of lives already, and they're going to save a lot more lives um, down the road the administration and public health officials and myself and everybody included wanted everybody to get vaccinated uh, in 2021, early 2021. We all had this starry-eyed idea that that would be like the end of the pandemic and the summer would be basically just a giant rave for everybody. Uh, And as we all know, in retrospect, it didn't quite turn out that way.
1: Hot vac summer did not happen.
0: Hot vac summer did not happen, right? Um, It was a lukewarm sort of half-vax summer. There was early indications in the evidence that uh, these vaccines under real-world conditions would not prevent infections at the levels that they did in the clinical trials. And they said it would be unusual, especially for a respiratory infection that replicates in your nose and your passageways before a lot of the immune system can get at it, it would be very unusual for it to prevent infection. But that was the message we got because they wanted to shape the public response, right? They mm. wanted people to go out and get vaccinated. What happened later, and we still, we still see it today, is because people's expectation was that the vaccine was going to prevent them from getting infected. It is viewed as a failure now when somebody does get infected. And that feeds into the narrative that the vaccines, which are highly effective, aren't working. And so now people don't want to get vaccinated. There's lots of other reasons, you know, but a lot, one of the reasons is people feel sort of misled. They feel a little bit betrayed. They feel like this thing was oversold. So I think it feeds some some very bad narratives.
1: When we come back, politics is poisoning public health. Or wait, maybe it's supposed to. Often in criticism of the CDC, you'll hear the idea that politics has been injected into public health. But Tim, who's been writing about health and science for years, says that's kind of missing the point. Clinging to some pure, monkish idea of unsullied science has never been the goal of public health.
0: Science describes what's going on in the world, and follow the science describes what you should do about it. I think people were disappointed when the Biden administration, quote-unquote, didn't follow the science, because there's a point at which the science, can, the, the, the science can tell you what's going on in the world, but it can't tell you what to do.
1: That's where two fundamental views of public health come into play, and into conflict with one another. I asked him to describe them.
0: So a narrow version of public health is really focusing on you know surveilling disease, saying where it is. These you know, gathering facts, that, that kind of thing. A broad version of public health says, well, the reason that diseases are in one place or another is because there are more crowded housing there. There's more poverty there. There are social conditions that contribute to these things. Thus, as public health um, practitioners, our goals and values should be to study those things and to fix those things. And in that case, you're really starting to get into the realm of policy right? The CDC is never going to be able to set housing policy for the United States. And so there's this constant tension, I think, about what the scope of public health is. Hmm. But even in the narrowest versions, right, you're always dealing with some kind of policy, right? Even the research, the diseases they choose to study, the things that they choose to do, those all are decisions um, that, you know, public health is not just about collecting knowledge for the sake of it. It's about knowledge that will impact the world. I think people in public health genuinely want to make a better world. And making a better world is something that you typically do through policies or laws or something like that. Uh, so there isn't really a version of public health that is purely science.
1: Does it seem to you like the CDC picked either the broad or narrow interpretation over the past few years?
0: If we take that top-level message about the pandemic, you, you're do seeing it, I think, going narrower and narrower, right? They are choosing a set of values that says, we're going to kind of leave this up to individuals to let the high-risk individuals you know, figure out who they are. It's not like they're totally hanging up their hat, right? I mean, they are aware of these issues in equity. Um, they just had a you know, proposed reorganization where they're going to have an office of, of equity, right? But the overarching meth- message right now is that you're kind of on your own. And that, that are, those are the values that they're espousing, right?
1: You're leading me to this week when Rochelle Walensky, the head of the agency, presented the, the findings of a review of the CDC and seemed to recognize that they whiffed it. There's a quote from her in the New York Times speaking to to the staff saying, to be frank, we are responsible for some pretty dramatic, pretty public mistakes from testing to data to communications. This is our watershed moment. We must pivot, which, okay, fair. Um, What can they pivot to?
0: There was a proposed, you know, some proposed restructurings of that to enable them to produce relevant science and recommendations to a fast-moving pandemic, be a little bit more nimble about that. I think traditionally the CDC has moved a little bit slower. There are certain review processes of the scientific information and organizational structures and a bunch of boring stuff like that. So they're going to figure out, hey, where can we cut the flak so that we can just be a more responsive agency?
1: Often in, in crises of confidence or any type of a big moment when some sort of government agency has has lost the trust or had the trust had their trust questioned by people. Transparency is cited again and again as as a way to fix that. And you wrote about the idea that the CDC should show its work. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean?
0: I think the the biggest and most infamous example would be the uh, masks uh, in early twenty twenty. The CDC, along with some other organizations, were concerned about the supply of masks for healthcare care workers. Uh, the evidence on airborne transmission for the virus was mounting, uh, but they were concerned about a run on masks. And they dragged their feet. I don't really think it's debatable. Uh, but that was a place where they were extremely uh, non-transparent. They just didn't they didn't say all of the factors at play. I remember being very upset about this too. I mean, they—I felt lied to. You know, they were—they were being a little cagey. So that was a perfect example of not showing their work. If we fast forward to you know end of 2021, beginning of 2022, when Omicron was taking off. They shortened the isolation period from 10 to five days, and a lot of the reasons that they gave were, oh, the you know you're not going to be that infectious at five days, you know, all of this stuff, blah blah blah. We knew at that point. You know, from the data, it was you know pretty clear that um, you know a significant number of people were going to be infectious after five days. Um, a very logical way to address that would have been, okay, we'll just stay home and take a rapid test. But guess what, we didn't have rapid tests. They were in short supply. So when you sort of wave your hands and say, "Hey, look, the science says five days is kind of okay." What they're really doing is they're hiding the fact that there's this failure to order a whole bunch of rapid tests and have those ready for Americans so they could truly recommend use those free rapid tests that we sent you and just leave when you get a negative result, right? So that would have been a more logical policy, but they pretended like there was a scientific justification for their five days.
1: At the same time, Rochelle Walensky said the CDC couldn't take science in a vacuum and wanted to keep parts of society open which is sort of the agency showing its work, but not entirely.
0: It was shortened to five days for healthcare workers before it was for the general public, in part because we wanted to make sure that the healthcare system was working because the collateral damage of having a collapsing healthcare system was probably, you know, or at least in their estimation, was maybe worth um, the excess transmission that having the healthcare workers back would be Hmm. uh, in those settings. But I think it's a fair question to ask. How long should we isolate for that's, A, realistic for people to do, um, will minimize transmission, but also keep society in some sort of functioning state? It's a reasonable question to ask. The CDC did not present it that way. They presented it as, hey, science says five days, you're good to go. Don't worry about the rapid test. But oh, if you have one, yeah, probably use it. It was super confusing.
1: Do you think people can handle the complicated?
0: If communications are done effectively, I think people can handle it. And I think people do see through arbitrary or what seem to be capricious recommendations. I think people can understand that science changes. I mean, it's a it's a little more, you know, it's a little more difficult to have science change this fast. And so I get that's confusing because a lot of Especially people... Especially
1: in an environment when it can be weaponized in a bad faith way.
0: Exactly. Right. But you know, take an example of um, airborne spread, right? So for so many months in the pandemic, we had these things like three feet and six feet, right? You know, if you place the desks at school, six feet apart from each other, and there's little marker, there's still markers on the sidewalk in New York with little X's of like where you're supposed to stand if you're like in the grocery store and, you know, that kind of stuff. So people, you form a mental model automatically of this of six feet, right? It's like, okay, six feet is um, safe and closer than that is unsafe, right? A much simpler thing is to just say, hey, the closer you are to somebody, the, the more likely you are to get infected. Um, it's like smoke, right? If you could smell smoke, then you, can, you, know, you could breathe in virus. People understand the concept of a threat or an, a sensory stimulus that decreases with distance. Right, like I know if a cigarette smoker is across the street, I'm not going to inhale a lot of smoke. I know that if I'm in a car with all the windows up, I'm going to inhale a lot of smoke. It's actually not that complicated.
1: In this conversation, in a lot of this coverage, in daily thinking about who is keeping Americans safe to whatever degree is possible in this pandemic, a lot of blame has fallen on the CDC. Is that appropriate? Are we are we giving them, like, too much credit and too much blame?
0: The CDC has become a punching bag for a lot of people, but there are some forces that have made it a punching bag. And I think that that's important to acknowledge, that uh, th- there is an active campaign, you know, to destabilize the very idea of scientific knowledge and the very idea of government intervention in the name of public health, right? So. The CDC has had some missteps, for sure, absolutely. But there is a very bad faith effort out there to weaponize those missteps. Um, So, yes, they can be a punching bag, but like they don't maybe need to be punched as hard as we are.
1: When we think about how the CDC should reorganize itself and who it should serve, there are some fundamental tensions. Tensions that go back to the new guidance that we talked about at the top of the show. Who is public health for? Is it for me to keep myself and my family safe? Or is it for all of us? And can an agency blend that collective safety with a culture of American individualism?
0: I was speaking to another uh, one of my sources, and, and she actually she felt that um, messaging, you know, was a bit of a red herring in the sense that the CDC's vision was just flawed and they've actually communicated that they care you know they're looking at this as an individual problem and that's how they're going to do it you know and so she's like it's not that they're communicating it poorly it's just it's a poor vision and I I don't know if I totally totally buy that but I do understand there is an incompatibility with certain principles of public health which are Achieving equity in, you know, health outcomes for people who maybe aren't as enfranchised as others. So when you think about plumbing, right, everybody in theory is supposed to have really good plumbing, right? Um, We want to work on things like air pollution so everybody can have good air, et cetera. cetera. So there's many, many examples of this. So public health is a collective, like, let's kind of raise up everybody endeavor, it's not, you know what, go check what your risk is for lead pipes. And if you find them, you know, go to this website and figure out if you can get your pipes replaced. And so I think that that's what a lot of the public health experts take issue with, is they don't feel that the the CDC is is really upholding those principles. Uh, and by meeting the public where they are, quote unquote, they're, they're betraying. That, that mission, because that's not their mission.
1: Tim Requarth, thank you very much.
0: All right, thank you.
1: Tim Requarth is a lecturer of science and writing at New York University, and he writes about health and science for Slate. You should check out his work. All right, that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of this show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thank you so much for listening.